Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 4th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. There may be a cost of a living crisis, but the government is in the money, an awful lot of money, expecting to raise more money in taxes this year than ever before, with the Department of Finance projecting more than €80 billion Euro to be raised in tax revenue by the year's end. In the first 10 months of this year, 64 billion has been raised already in taxes. To put that into context, taxes are 13 billion euro or 25% ahead on the same time last year. The government is flush but cautious and is putting 6 billion euro from this windfall aside into the National Reserve Fund this year and next. This is not the right approach at a time of such hardship for so many people according to people before profiteed D for Cork North Central, Mick Barry, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Mick Barry. Thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. What would you like the government to do with this extra revenue? Uh, a mini budget? Yeah, I think we could be uh, heading for a mini budget early in the new year. Um, I think at the moment, a lot of people are probably watching and waiting to see how the uh, measures that were introduced in the budget uh, impact on their. Uh, household balance sheets. Um, so I don't think the demand for the mini-budget is, is strong enough yet, but I can see a situation in January and February where that would come on the agenda. I mean, the government clearly have um, the financial power available to them now to go significantly beyond what was done in the budget itself just to to square those figures off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the government are probably looking at being 15 or 16 billion euro up uh, on last year by the end of the year, right? There was just barely over 4 billion euro in one-off measures uh, introduced in uh, the budget in September. So for every euro that was spent, 
uh, on assisting households in this crisis. Uh, there was four euro to hand, or there will be four euro to hand by the end of uh, the year. So the government are using only a small portion of their firepower, and I think that there are sufficiently large numbers of people uh, hurting sufficiently badly to say that they they haven't gone far, far enough. Uh, and that more needs to be done on that front. Okay, but it, it could get worse, and it, it could get a whole lot worse, couldn't it? I mean, there's so many uncertainties. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's going to be a recession, uh, quite clearly internationally, uh, in, in the next 6, 12, 18 months. Mm. Uh, and I think the idea that Ireland is going to be able to withstand that, uh, there, there may be an element of fanciful uh, thinking uh, about that, um, but, you know, you talk about putting money aside in a mm. rainy day fund. Well, it's raining and it's raining every day for significant numbers of ordinary people. I mean, we have 11,000 people uh, in emergency accommodation now. Um, it's often reported in the media that there are 11,000 people now homeless. But that's not strictly correct. <laughs> that's a figure for the number of people who are in emergency yeah. accommodation. And it costs a lot of money to provide accommodation for them. Yeah, and there, there, there's mm. many, many people who, who, um, are, who are homeless who are not counted in those emergency accommodation figures. People who are rough sleeping, uh, people who are couch surfing, uh, just kipping on the couch in a friend's house because they don't have a, a roof of their own over their heads. In reality, there are tens of thousands of homeless people in this uh, country. And should we be setting aside six billion euro in a rainy day fund uh, when, as I say, every day is a rainy day for those Mm. people? Okay. well, uh, there's no doubt about uh, a recession uh, that's already taking place and is going to be the longest in history in the UK. Uh, and there's a, a whole lot of, of uncertainties that we're facing here. Uh, and I imagine that the government's argument is uh, that this is to help shield it against all of that, because bad and all as it is now, it could get an awful lot worse. Uh, the ESRI reckons that most people will be able to get through things as things stand. Well, I, I think uh, a lot of people who are facing the choice of heating or eating this Christmas uh, might debate the point with the ESRI. But it's not just the fact that the government uh, have not, in my view, gone far enough with uh, measures to assist people. Mm. It's also their more or less complete failure to uh, clamp down in any serious way on the profiteering that we see all around us. I mean, the government ministers uh, would have us all think that it's it's all down to um, the war, Russia, Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, etc. And undoubtedly, that is key factor here. But it doesn't take into account the massive profiteering by uh, the energy companies, the massive profiteering by the supermarkets, uh, the massive profiteering by the landlords uh, that we see all around us. And why are the government not taking the gloves off and clamping down on the profiteering? I I think in reality they are, um, you know, tied by a thousand strings, uh, political business connections, etc., uh, to the profiteering interests. You only have mm. to look at the number of landlords on the Fine Gael ben- benches, the number of landlords on the Fianna Fáil benches, uh, to see why, for example, they're not going for a rent freeze. And, and this undermines the, the, the budget policy. So, for example, you give a €500 Euro tax break to renters. Well, it's not enough, but it is welcome. But if you don't bring in a rent freeze, 
the landlords will see that coming through the pipeline and increase the rents and it ends up in their pockets rather than in the pockets of the ordinary renters and and, and the government have really really fallen down uh, on this uh, uh, particular front. Okay, well, if you spend all of the money that you have today, you'll have nothing left tomorrow. Uh, and uh, if you're hit with some sort of shock and there's plenty of potentials, as we all know uh, at this stage, uh, you've nothing to combat that. But you're saying not just spend, you're saying raise more in taxes uh, by stopping this profiteering. Yes, that's right. Um, so l- let's just walk back through the line of arguments that you've put to me there, mm. right? I've said to you that there are going to be 15 or 16 billion extra in the coffers this year and that the state has spent 4 billion on the special budget measures and they need to go further. You seem to have translated that, Michael, into saying that uh, I'm saying the government should blow the whole 16 billion. I never said that. I said that they should spend significantly more than Mm. before. And and I haven't translated that. I'm just trying to talk it through with you because, uh, I mean, when you talk about the $4 that the government did spend or had at its disposal to spend, the government will say, (laughs) they won't actually say it's from profiteering, but they'll say it's coming from corporation tax, uh, which uh, is at a a very low level. But uh, because uh, there's so many companies making so much money that 10 companies have... Uh, to a large extent, funded uh, the measures that the government has introduced to help people this year. Well, you're right to say that the tax is at an extraordinary low level because the state's corporation tax is meant to be 12.5%, headed towards 15% in the next period. Um, But you know and I know that corporations are not being taxed at a rate of 15% or even 12.5%. The real figure is probably closer to 8% when you look at all this, the special tax breaks that are, are, are given uh, to them. Mm, but that's so why they're paying that 8% record, here. If you've got uh, record yeah. corporation taxes, breaking all records, and they're being taxed at a rate of 8%, what does it say about the level of profits that are being made? Not oh, just uh, yeah. companies, but by it's, it's immoral. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's uh, the reason why, or you could argue at least, that if it was addressed that there wouldn't be children going to bed hungry or dying in the Horn of Africa tonight as a, a result of a, a hunger. Uh, but the other argument is, uh, if you ask them to pay 15%, maybe they'd pay that somewhere else. Or pay 12% somewhere else? Well, they're going to be asked to pay 15% and there'll be people like yeah. myself. Uh, allegedly so. How many that is collected, so let's see what uh, happens. No, no doubt the creative accountants in the Department of Finance uh, will be looking at, at that. But uh, there is the risk, of course, to this corporation tax. Uh, if uh, the bottom falls out of that, there will be no money. Uh, and if the cost of living goes up because of the increase of gas prices or, or other impacts from the war, uh, we're going to see uh, it more expensive. So we'll have less money to shield us against it. It'll be more expensive. If we go into recession, as you say, the next thing that follows as as true as night follows day is unemployment, layoffs, redundancies and so on Uh, and that leads uh, to a a further uh, strain on the exchequer and I I presume that these are the arguments that the government is putting forward for being prudent uh, and putting money away for such a consequence. Yeah, but I I, I don't accept them. Um, There there is a huge amount of um, untapped potential uh, wealth in this country um, that is not being used to um, combat the cost of living crisis, the housing crisis, or the vast inequality that we have in our country. 
All right. Mm. So let's shift away from corporation uh, profits for a moment and look at the issue of personal wealth. All right. Um, there are 93,000 households in this country, which between them have personal wealth of 388 billion. That's an average of 4.3 million each. Now, if you were to introduce a millionaire's tax at a modest rate, 2%, um, and allowing a million euro for someone's uh, uh, own you know, their, their first residence, right? You, you don't count the first million and you tax at 2%. That would raise nearly 6 billion euro. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and what could be they're, done they're with the figures from they're, they're of, the figures from Oxfam, I think, aren't they? Um, they're figures from, they're, they're the state's own figures, but they would be back, backed up by information provided by Oxfam and other mm. NGOs. Yeah. Yes. And yes, you and I are debating that idea on LMFM uh, radio show mm. this morning, uh, but where is the debate in society as a whole uh, about um, uh, wealth taxes and using some of the wealth that is uh, in the hands of a small minority mm. uh, in the interests of uh, society and ordinary people who are struggling? And very wealthy people, but you're talking uh, about new taxes of maybe seventy-five or 100,000 on those people. I think that uh, anyone who has a personal income of €100,000 or more uh, needs to be paying more tax in this country. I'm not talking about uh, the guard or the mm. nurse or the teacher uh, who maybe would be coming close to that figure uh, in terms of household income uh, alongside their partner. I'm talking about you know, what they call HNWIs, <laughs> high net worth individuals. Okay. Uh, 100,000 euro and more. I'm glad you explained what HNWIs are and have been lost. Okay. Uh, and uh, how, how would you set about that? Uh, introducing a third t- rate of income tax? Yeah, I, I, I think that there is a strong argument um, that, you know, uh, workers on less than the average wage or mm. approximating to the average wage should not be paying at 40%. Um, they, there should be a new rate of 30% for them. But if you do that uh, without taking any other steps, then you reduce the tax take for the state and the, fail- the funding that's available for education, health, and so yeah. on. So you need to have graduated rates then uh, for people who are on you know, the, 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 the 80,000, the 90,000, and then sharply increasing after the 100,000, I think, yeah. Okay. Uh, are you uh, talking to a minority of people or, or the majority of people, to put that question in another way, scoffing at, at this? Because if you look at the opinion poll following on from the budget, uh, uh, the government parties uh, that were slumping have got a boost. Yeah, I studied those opinion polls uh, quite carefully. Um, there was one poll in the Irish Times which had the government parties up 6%. There was another Red Sea poll in Sunday Business Post which had them up uh, by 1%, which is quite marginal. Um, but the more interesting questions were the questions asked about, uh, do you consider yourself to be in, uh, and your household to be in a serious financial situation? And uh, the numbers declined after the budget, uh, but they declined slightly. For example, I think in June, 49% of households said that uh, financially they were in a very difficult situation. After the budget, that went down a bit, but it's 44%. Which means that, you know, after the so-called bonanza budget, 
uh, that was hailed as the biggest giveaway since the Celtic Tiger. Uh, more than two households in five in this country still consider themselves to be in serious financial difficulties. And I think that underlines the strength of the point that I made at the start of the show, that uh, A, the uh, government, the budget measures, uh, while welcome, do not go far enough, and B, that there needs to be strong measures taken to tackle the profiteering that we see all going on all around us. Okay, another protest tomorrow week? Yes, there will be protests taking place in uh, Dublin, uh, in Cork, uh, and across the country on Saturday the 12th of uh, November. Um, I think the last round of protests uh, organised by the Cost of Living uh, Coalition, um, you know, particularly the, se- the September 17th protest in Cork and the September 24th protest in Dublin, did uh, have an effect in putting the government under pressure uh, in the run-up to the budget. Um, I don't think that they saw 20,000, 25,000 people on the streets and were terrified, but I think they, they were aware of the fact that they had the potential to grow and become significantly stronger uh, if they didn't act in the budget and take account of the mood of the country, which probably forced them to go a bit further than they intended to do. But uh, there's a lot more needs to be done. The pressure needs to be kept on. And that's why this round of protests uh, on Saturday week are, are important, and I hope people can turn out. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. People before Profit TD for Cork North Central, Mick Barry. Now, uh, we'll uh, get on to on post. Uh, I'm just uh, speaking to somebody who's been in touch with us on text, wondering uh, if there's a problem uh, with uh, the delivery service uh, to Terman Feck. And we'll check that out for you. Thanks uh, for texting uh, to us uh, this morning. If uh, we can do anything for you or if you'd like to make any comment on the programme uh, this morning, let me remind you that you can call us on 041 983 text or WhatsApp 086 1800 658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, dramatic, very eye-catching headline in uh, the Irish Independent uh, this week, particularly for anybody from uh, this part of uh, the country. It reads, murdered criminal Robbie Lawler, named in court as gunman who left gang boss Owen Maguire paralysed. The story is written by Eamon Dillon, crime journalist uh, with uh, the Sunday World uh, and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Eamon, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. This goes back to July of 2018 and the beginning of the feud, the now notorious, infamous Drogheda gangland feud. Uh, That's right. Um, And I suppose this information came out in an affidavit which was filed by the Criminal Assets Bureau who are are attempting to seize cash and property from Olmogar and his brother Brendan. Um, so, I mean, these cases are, are interesting in, in a sense that sometimes you, you finally get the official version of events. Um, it's, it's often the first time that uh, you, you, you get an idea of, of what has actually happened. I mean, certainly, you know, my colleague Ken Foy in, in, in The Independent would have written before, you know, very much that Robbie Lawler was the, the suspect behind the shooting. But to kind of get it in, in kind of an official form like this, you know, it's the first time and it kind of pretty much nails it down. So... It gives you that kind of insight into into what went on. Mm. Uh, and as I remember it, uh, it was six gunshots uh, that went into McGuire uh, at that halting site in Mel. That's right. Yeah, uh, I mean, what was one? Um, there was a, a, a second affidavit as well regarding and that was, um, about an officer who arrived at the scene and described 
um, a Ford Transit van with the door open and Maguire was lying between that and the front door of, of his, his then home in Cement Road. He, he has, he's at a different address now also on Cement Road. But... Um, and, and the reason that was mentioned wasn't so much to describe the scene, but it was to, it was it was in reference to the Ford Transit van, which is one of the you know one of the items, one of the some of the property that's been seized by by the Criminal Assets Bureau. Um, but it, yeah, it was certainly I suppose it must have been uh, it, 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 it was it was very much um, credited as being the kickoff, uh, the, you know, for the, this this feud that then spiraled into as we know, you know, hundreds of. of um, arson attacks and, and, and beatings and at least three murders yeah. uh, connected to it. Yeah, yeah it's been a, a dreadful time and uh, it's left many people very fearful uh, as people listening to us this morning are acutely uh, aware it has died down to some degree uh, for that very reason because uh, people have gone off the scene as you say in your report either because they've been killed or they've been uh, put behind bars or they've gone uh, abroad uh, but uh, according to the affidavit given to the court by this guarded detective inspector Robbie Lawler is reported to have said who was behind the shooting, who he was acting uh, 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 on behalf of. Yeah, I mean, he, he, it, was, it, was, it was said that he used words similar to these, that this is, uh, these are from, and he mentioned a name which we can't use at the minute for legal reasons. At, at some point in the future, we'll probably be able to publish that. Um, but, it, I, you know, obviously this was heard by somebody and reported to the guards at the time. Um, but it, it kind of... It, 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 you know, it, it, it allows us to kind of uh, put all the pieces together, if you know what I mean, um, from what we knew. So we, we certainly get a, big, a bigger, uh, an idea of the bigger picture that the guards have in terms of, you know, where they were going and when they were looking into this. Now, of course, um, Robbie Lawler is never going to face any charges in relation to this. Um, we know that it was, it was um, when it was it April 2020, he himself was murdered uh, in Belfast. And again, in, in the piece that I wrote um, this week, it was mentioned in, in the same affidavit that uh, there was a, a large sum of money that they believe came from the, the, the Price Maguire gang to a Limerick criminal gang, um, supposedly for, for their role in, in, in allowing that assassination attempt to happen in Belfast. Right. Um, and uh, there's a lot of money, uh, a, a lot of properties, uh, cars, uh, vans, watches and that sort of thing uh, involved in all of this. Uh, it's a pretty profitable business. Uh, these fellows have been involved in it, it would seem. Yeah, I mean, it was described in, it was described as being in, you know, the, the large scale um, sale of drugs. I think uh, literally a month after uh, Owen McGuire was shot and, and you know, left paralysed, he's paralysed from the, from the chest down and confined to a wheelchair. Less than a month after that, €270,000 in cash was found hidden in, in the roof tiles. And that's, that's kind of the bulk of the cash that's in this uh, Criminal Assets Bureau case. It's uh, 304000 I think, in, in total. Um, and some of that would have been seized at different times, different searches. But the, the main bulk of it, the 270000 was found um, you know, just a month after after that shooting, that you know has left him permanently injured, okay. um, and, and and he denied to the guards at the time that he had anything to do with the money. So mm. it remains to be seen if there's going to be any fight over over the kind of the, the attempt to, or the, the if there's going to be any legal resistance to um, a seizure order being granted for this cash. Okay. Uh, as we understand it, uh, or at least as I understand it from your your report, uh, this feud began. In 2018, when Robbie Lawler went to the halting site on the cement road in Mel with a shotgun, 
uh, and fired, discharged six bullets uh, into Owen Maguire. It culminated, I suppose, then in 2021 and uh, that dreadful killing of a child, 17-year-old Keane Mulready Woods. Uh, was uh, Lawler still in the game at that stage? Yeah, I mean, like that, that in in January 2020, um, yeah, he, he was almost immediately singled out as a chief suspect. Um, and again, I, I, it's been mentioned, you know, like it's been widely circulated that he, he was one of the people involved. Um, he had a, a relation where there was an attempt on their life by the Price Maguire gang. So even though he was from Kulak, had become personally involved in this feud, which certainly looks to have taken it to a new level. And it was, it was then again, just four months after that murder that, you know, where it was just a terrific one, as we all remember. It was incredibly shocking. Mm-hmm. Body parts being left in a in a bag in Kulak and in a burning car in, in, in uh, the north end of the city, Dublin. And then um, I think another, I think his torso was found then later in, in, in Drogheda. Um, so, I mean, but Lawler himself was dead within four months uh, of that. But, uh, I mean... I mean, I, you don't need somebody from the Sunday World telling the you know listeners and now it's just yeah. how how shocking and and frightening that that murder was. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think many of us will never forget it. Uh, where is this feud at now, Eamon? Um, it, it has died off, uh, but I, I, I don't think it, it, it's finished. Uh, certainly not in terms of drug dealing, drug selling, and gangs, uh, and indeed the Garda investigation. No, and I mean, you know, like, I mean, the, the, the Maguire's kind of got going in the drug business in 2006, 2007, when, you know, basically there was a gap in the market after other drug dealers that they had nothing to do with were murdered. So, you know, just because one drug dealer is, is gone doesn't necessarily lessen the demand for the product. So someone else is going to move in. And I'm sure, you know, like, I, I don't know specifically about Drogheda, but certainly in, in other towns that I'm well acquainted with, the, you know, there's never a shortage of cocaine. There's never a shortage of, of you know, people's drugs of their choice. And I, I imagine it's much the same in, in Laos these days. Mm. Uh, so it shows you that even though there may be these, these particular gangs may be under severe pressure um, and maybe have to curtail their drug dealing activities, it, you know, the market is still, is still vibrant to use, you know, a kind of a commercial terms but um so i mean and and the money being made by these people is just so so big that there's never not going to be somebody willing to step into that gap and whether the feud itself um i mean it's certainly in abeyance um uh, uh, certainly because you know a lot of the main players are you know one through one way or another are are, are indisposed and and a lot of it has to you know a lot of that credit has to go to the guardi you know who did get to grips with this, and there's a, you know quite a number of people facing serious charges, and those trials we expect to be happening next year. Okay, well, you've uh, certainly shed some light uh, on uh, the story behind uh, the story that we've been living with uh, in your report, Eamon. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Very much appreciate it. Appreciate it. Eamon Dillon, crime journalist with The Sunday World. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's uh, speak uh, to Threshold. Anne-Marie O'Reilly is uh, the National Advocacy Manager for the housing charity Threshold. Good morning to you, Anne-Marie, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. We heard yesterday uh, this remarkable statistic uh, that you were getting a call every 20 minutes from people renting property uh, who were facing eviction in the first nine months of this year. Uh, the numbers behind that really are incredible as 
well. Uh, you supported a, a total of 8,835 households and prevented 1,121 of those from entering into homelessness. Uh, there is a, a moratorium now on evictions, a ban on evictions. Uh, I, I take it from what you saw between July and September uh, that when we get to the other side of this, people are going to face having to find somewhere else to live or nowhere to live. And mm. um, so I suppose that that really is a, a, a genuine concern and worry. So the eviction ban, it unfortunately had to be put in place because of the, the sheer volume of people who are facing losing their home. And then given the fact that there's so little alternative accommodation to find and the homeless numbers increasing, that uh, uh, an emergency measure the eviction ban had to be uh, put in place. And what it will do is it will defer people's termination dates. So while the ban ends on the 31st of March, that doesn't mean the people who should have left between now and March will all have to be out on the 1st of April. They'll have delayed dates uh, of when they have to move out, which will hopefully give them additional time to find alternative accommodation. Mm. But what what really needs to happen is um, additional efforts need to be made to ensure people can stay in their homes, uh, keep landlords in the sector and to uh, deliver uh, more homes where at all possible in the short to medium term. Uh, that, that's really what need, that, yeah. that's, that's nearly more important than the ban, but the ban gives that bit of breathing space and time for those sort of things to be done. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, of course, is uh, that they can challenge the notice to quit. Uh, and when people came to you, you found that half of the eviction notices were invalid. Yeah, that, that's the case. Yeah, so um, half were invalid. And in those cases, the person doesn't have to leave the home. And now we... We would have seen in previous years a greater number of them being invalid. Uh, so there is a bit of a shift in that respect as well. But where it is, you know, the, the threshold advisors are, are experts in the Residential Tenancies Act mm. and they're able to look at the eviction notice and determine if it's valid or not and give the appropriate guidance and advice to the tenant. Uh, based on that notice. So um, we were able to, in Q3, um, half the people who are at risk of homelessness were actually able to stay in their home um, and an additional 20% did have to uh, find uh, somewhere else uh, to live. Okay. Um, can, can, can you give us some examples? If somebody is listening to us and they've been served with a, a notice to quit, an eviction notice, mm-hmm. um, what, what, what can they do to challenge it? When may it not be invalid? Uh, what have you come across? Uh, have been people been told to leave within a, a couple of weeks or, or where have the uh, problems been with these notices? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the most common uh, reason people are asked to leave is because the landlord intends to sell. They actually accounted for 60% of the notices. So there's a few things the notice has, has to have. Uh, it has to have the right notice period set out. You know, so that will depend on how long the person has been in the property. Mm. And uh, those actually, there were some changes made to those earlier this year. But anyone can jump on the Threshold website and, and mm. have a look and see. Or they can give a call to one of the advisors and find out, well, is that the correct length of notice? Mm. And then if, if it is for the purposes of sale, well, the landlord needs to provide a statutory declaration uh, with that notice declaring of their intention to sell. Uh, it isn't just simply a case the landlord says, oh, yeah, I am selling it, uh, you have to be out now. Uh, they, ha- they have to, uh, 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 
demonstrate of their genuine intention to do so. Mm. Um, and then if the property isn't sold within a certain period of time, they are obliged to offer it back to the original tenant. Right. Um, so there are mechanisms in place to do that mm. uh, with, with the RTB. And a landlord's also required to send a copy of the notice of termination to the RTB. Mm. Uh, so those are a couple of the things. So yeah. I suppose... Um, uh, and quite, of quite, quite often you're, you're, you're entitled to six months' notice or more, isn't it? It, it depends on how long mm. you've been in the property. Yeah. So if, you're, yeah. if you've only been in your property less than six months, then it's 90 days' notice you right. get. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the longest uh, notice period is eight months. Mm. Uh, and that will be for somebody who's been in their property six, uh, I think it's more than six years. I'm, mm. I'm not as au fait as the advisors yeah. with it. No, but, you, but, but, you're, but, but, but it's food for thought for people who may be mm. in that. So it's somewhere, yeah. between, it's somewhere between three and eight months, let's say. Oh, yeah. If, if, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and if not, as you say, there's so much uh, advice on the Threshold uh, website, mm-hmm. threshold.ie. There's a live mm-hmm. chat. There's a free mm-hmm. phone number as well, one 800 But you are concerned uh, about what's coming down the line uh, when we get into the end of March, April uh, and so on uh, and this is probably a time to step back and to think about that uh, and to think about the consequences uh, of not taking action. Uh, yes and, and, and you know, we've, we've engaged with the, the government on this when they were talking about bringing in the eviction ban and put forward you know, our recommendations and where we see there, the, you know, the possibility for changes um, you know, so, for example, we've recommended that when a landlord does want to sell, that they be able to sell that property with a tenant in situ to the local authority or, or an approved housing body um, with a reduced capital gains tax payable. Mm. So that being the incentive. You know, alternatively, uh, you know, we hear from landlords that they want um, that they need to see a reduce in the tax on rental income. Well, if that was to be something that was uh, provided... That would need to be balanced with some with long term security of tenure for a tenant, so mm. minimum lease of ten years in exchange for that reduced uh, tax on the rental income. Mm. Um, we also need to see, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about bringing in measures to get the short term, bring short term lets back into the long term market, and uh, we really need to see that happen. There are potentially thousands of properties around the country that were once private rental that are now short term lets, and they need to be brought back into uh, uh, use for, for people who are looking for homes. Um, so those are just a, a couple of the, the measures uh, that c- could be taken uh, in, in that very short window. It's, it's five months. We certainly don't expect tens of thousands of homes to come on stream in five months. But it's these types of measures and, and also targeting the vacant properties out there uh, as well to get them back into use without delay. Okay, well, as you say, it's a, a short uh, enough time frame. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I'm sure there's uh, people who have had a, a sigh of relief uh, oh. because uh, they've been given some protection over the winter uh, and hopefully that uh, relief uh, will continue on uh, into the spring. We leave it there, though, for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining okay. us, as always. Thank Anne-Marie you. O'Reilly, National Advocacy Manager with the Housing Charity Threshold. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, an important shared island dialogue event is uh, to take place in Kells in uh, the next hour or so. And let's hear a little bit more on this all island approach that is hopefully going to be uh, agreed at this event uh, on domestic violence with the Minister for Justice, uh, Minister Helen McEntee, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You're meeting in Kells. 
as I say, with uh, the Minister for Justice uh, in Northern Ireland, Naomi Long. We are, yes. And look, as you've said, this is part of um, a shared island initiative that was launched by the Taoiseach back in October of 2020. Um, So this is, I think, the 12th of its kind or the 12th kind of dialogue that has taken place. But this is the first time that we've had a discussion bringing together both ministers, bringing together departments and agencies, but also all of civil society organisations, so the various different service providers and groups, to specifically focus on domestic sexual and gender-based violence and all of these shared island initiatives and dialogues. Um, The focus is really is how can we work better together, how can we learn from each other, how can we, after this discussion, not just talk about it, but actually put in place concrete measures and plans. So it means working at a a greater level, at a government level, but also, as I mentioned, civil society organisations, so everyone from the Rape Crisis Networks to Women's Aid to all of these wonderful organisations. How can we bring people together in, in, a, in an all-island way to discuss this issue? So we have a really fantastic group of people attending here in Kells. We're in Eureka House this morning. Myself and Naomi will be kicking things off, but really the whole focus of today is bringing together those different groups um, and having a number of different panel discussions. So the first discussion would be on prevention, how we can change attitudes, how we can change the different types of behaviours. And then the second larger discussion will focus on victims. How can we make sure that our services work better together? How can we learn from what we're doing in each jurisdiction, specifically focusing on victims and survivors and what we can do more to help them? So really Mm -hmm. hopeful for this meeting discussion. Myself and Naomi meet quite regularly as ministers and we, we work with each other on legislation and policy. But this just really expands it out in a much broader way uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really delighted that we're having it. As I said, this is the first time we've had this type of all island discussion on domestic and sexual violence. Okay, and uh, I take it uh, that uh, there'll be focus uh, as well uh, on uh, cross border cooperation because domestic violence, uh, like a, a lot of things, wouldn't recognise borders or, or uh, barriers uh, for that matter. Uh, and uh, there's issues uh, that can cross the border uh, when it comes uh, to supporting victims or policing the issue, as the case may be. Absolutely. And look, that's something that we work on continually. So only three weeks ago, myself and Minister Long, uh, with the PSNI and the Gardaí met in a, in a structured format that we have where we meet every um, six months and we set out a programme and a timeline of work that we need to do and how we can better engage so it's not solely focused on uh, domestic and sexual violence, it's all types of crime. But inevitably, I have to be honest, because this is such a focus for me and it's also such a focus for Naomi, um, we have always ended up speaking very much about domestic and sexual violence, how our legislation can be more in line with each other. So we're both working on legislation around um, stalking and and non-fatal strangulation. We both have new policies that we have either launched or are working on. Um, So that that is something that happens more generally, but today gives us a greater opportunity to see what we're doing at a government, I suppose, on a political level and how that can can be more in sync with the different work that's happening on the ground with the the service providers and the different agencies. But that cross-border cooperation is absolutely key. And, you know, as you've said, challenges do arise. And while while we've done our very best to make sure that Brexit has not impacted uh, in any way the the cooperation north, south or east and west, you know, there are still little things that are emerging that are actually quite significant, making sure that, you know, different types of orders that might be imposed are applying north and south 
that there is absolutely no ability for somebody who perpetrates this type of crime to get away with it because they're potentially in a different jurisdiction. So there were one or two things that we're still working through. And I suppose the more our officials meet in person, the more conversations we have, the quicker we can resolve these these type of issues as they arise. And today's event, is it a, a listen and learn event? It, it's a listen, it's a learn. I suppose the, the, the minute we start thinking that we're not going to learn from each other, the, the minute we stop learning anything. So it's about sharing experiences, but also um, what I hope is that we will have some concrete actions after this. So you will have the different organisations linking in with each other, but also we will look at ways in which we can, you know, so for example, the second panel where we're looking at how um, how we can make sure that our services are better aligned, how our policies are better aligned, so that will lead to concrete actions after today's event. And then more generally, looking at societal changes and attitudes, we have already started to look at how we can have uh, all-island-type campaigns based on consent, based looking at the impact of social media and I suppose how that is now creating concern and how there are massive challenges around domestic and sexual violence and doing it on an all-island basis, looking at what's worked before. So this, I hope, will lead to very concrete actions and plans from a cross-border basis in a policing way, but also more generally looking at, you know, how can we keep talking about this? How can we normalise this as a discussion, the fact that it is such a problem? Uh, You know, and look, you know, we've discussed this only a few weeks ago, the fact that uh, we now technically don't have an executive that shouldn't stop all of this other work from happening on the ground and that engagement from continuing. Okay. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. No doubt uh, that will form part of your discussions uh, whether they're private discussions or, or public discussions uh, with Naomi Long today, Minister. Uh, did you wake up uh, surprised to hear uh, the statement uh, that was uh, published uh, by Mr. Heaton Harris? Uh, to be honest, no. And, and I say that, I suppose, having met him only a few weeks ago, I think we're all very much on the same page here and that none of us want an election because I don't think it would be beneficial. Now, he has said very clearly within the law he must set out when a le- when an election must be within the 12 weeks um, and that he'll make an, 
make a statement next week. But what I know is that obviously there is work continuing to try and prevent that from happening, to try and bring together the different parties. And, you know, look, the main concern Mm -hmm. here, I think, for one of the parties is around the protocol. It's not been ideal that we have had changes in government in the UK, but I I believe that Rishi Sunak, you know, will focus on this and that we will have further engagement at a European level as well. So I think everybody's effort is to try and prevent that election from happening. Um, But the law is there. It is very clear. It was very clear with myself and Minister Coveney when we met Mm. that he must set out a timeline. Um, But I think the focus needs to be to try and prevent that from happening. Um, So I'm I'm not surprised that he hasn't called an election yet. If he doesn't do it within the 12 weeks, it's a breach of British legislation. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it would also contravene the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, but do you see this as a, a, a possible uh, way out of, of what has been a stalemate, uh, the beginning of the end of that stalemate uh, and uh, the beginning of a process uh, that will lead to a deal? It will look, the, the law is very clear, so yes, he must call an election and I think he's very clear on what he's saying on that. Um, but I think this morning's statement gives people hope that there is a way that we can try and avoid this because I don't think it's going to produce a better outcome. I'm not sure if it will change much of an outcome either if there is an election in the next 12 weeks or beyond that. So I think everybody needs to focus now, as as I know they are, to try and reach some sort of an agreement. I know it's possible, it's always possible, but it is about people sitting down around the table and talking the only way you get this solution um, and I think t- today's statement has given a little bit of space and a little bit of breathing room but unfortunately as you say the law is very clear the Minister himself is very clear as to what he has to do but I think every effort has been made to try and prevent it from getting to that stage so obviously you know, we have a certain level of involvement but only to a certain extent um, and we are here to support and to try and work with colleagues in the North and of course in, in Westminster to bring about that Okay uh, can I ask you uh, about uh, this uh, consultation scheme uh, that uh, you've opened uh, on uh, exonerating uh, convictions of gay and bisexual men, quashing those convictions? Yes, so look, Michael, this is this is really the last of what has been quite a lengthy process. And if I could, I mean, it really goes back to 1993. Maura Gagan-Quinn was minister at the time when she decriminalised homosexuality and this was obviously very welcome and, and a very welcome move, but it's what it meant believe, is that... It's hard to believe, isn't it, Minister? 1993, it really is hard to believe that it was uh, illegal uh, to have uh, same-sex relations. And Yeah, it, it's not that long ago, and while it was wonderful at the time, what it's actually meant is that you have quite a significant number of people who still have criminal convictions for something that should never have been in my opinion but that is not now a criminal conviction and so we are moving to try and make sure that those who have these kind of convictions that they're completely wiped that they're they're, you know that we we have them maybe for historical reasons but that it is not on the record that it does not follow them around and the hurt and the distress that it has caused so many of them Um, it's not straightforward at the same time and as we've gone through this process we have to be careful that where you're expunging these types of records, obviously where where there's a consensual relationship, that that is where this happens. But there have been situations, obviously, where that is not the case. So the last piece of the work we're doing now, this consultation, we're asking questions, you know, how can we make sure that this is accessible to everyone? How can we make sure the scheme is applied in the best way possible? 
but also how do we not re-traumatise people who have, you know, in, in many situations gone through and been put through a very, very difficult time. We're also working with uh, my colleague in the Department of Foreign Affairs to try and reach people outside of the country because for many different reasons, so many people have left the country, perhaps because of the laws that were here or they've just moved on. And I want to make sure that they have a say in this and that they are part of um, what I hope would be a very positive process for people. And maybe just to acknowledge my, my colleague, mm. Deputy Jed Nash uh, in County Loud yeah. has played a huge role in this and, and has really been very supportive and active in bringing us to this point as well. And a mm. lot of people have worked on this, so just to, to acknowledge and to thank mm. him for his work. Okay, and your hope is to quash uh, convictions for consens- consensual sex. Uh, would that include paid for sex and paid for sex with rent boys? So again, this is this is where we have to work through, I suppose, the various different elements of it. So where it has been consensual, but where a crime has not been committed, and there are different layers to it. Um, so that's that's okay. why we're at the, the final. That's why it's taken, to be honest, longer than we would have hoped, um, and longer than I would have hoped. But there are a lot of different elements. You know, there are grey spaces, and then there are very clear lines where there was clearly not consent, where there was clearly abuse where you have minors, various different elements. But even at that, it, it's not, you know, where, where you have two minors or where you have different elements of it. So we, we've had to work through it carefully uh, and make sure that what we put out in terms of the final scheme, that it is right, that we're not creating further dilemmas or challenges. Um, so this is the last the last piece of that puzzle. Uh, and that's why I really want to hear from as many people as possible. So there's information on the Department of Justice website. It will be open until the 9th of December. So people have quite a, a few weeks to engage in it and, and to have their say and just to make sure that they're part of this. But I hope it will be a very, very positive and a very welcome outcome for many, many people and probably something we should have done a, a long time ago. But look, we are we are nearly there now. And, and uh, as I said, the more people that engage, the, the better we can ensure that this scheme is. OK, Minister, thank you very much uh, indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who is Fine Gael TD for Meath East. Now, uh, just returning uh, to our discussion earlier on with Eamon Dillon of uh, the Sunday World uh, about uh, the gangland drug feud in Drogheda. Somebody telling us uh, that there was a house that was badly damaged uh, in their area uh, last Friday night uh, and uh, that they believe that the family or that one of the people in the house at least uh, would be linked to some of the gangs uh, and they're saying that this uh, problem has not gone away entirely, you know. Uh, and thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, if you would like to make comment on the programme, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp us on 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Record numbers of people are attending emergency departments and the HSE is warning that this winter there's going to be particular pressure on all of its services. I'm worried about patient safety and about the impact of, of, of congestion in emergency departments, primarily because of the discomfort it causes to patients, but also to their welfare and to their outcomes. So, of course, it's not safe to have a, a, a to have. Uh, the kind of staffing levels that are below what they should be, and that's why we're working with the to uh, to uh, 
to uh, bring more healthcare professionals into the system, into emergency departments, and part of our winter plan includes uh, bringing in more emergency department consultants, and some of the hospital groups have already pointed locums there in place, and also to have what we call safer staffing levels in emergency departments. Right, so that's uh, the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Colm Henry, at a HSE briefing yesterday, and with record numbers of patients uh, attending uh, and fewer staff available, uh, uh, levels that are, are not safe uh, it's hardly reassuring. I'd love to give the reassurance that maybe the people who are contacting you would like to hear that everything is going to get better overnight, but it's not. This is tough, and we are competing in an international market where people, uh, we have very good, uh, uh, highly qualified graduates in medicine and nursing and health and social care professionals who can travel and do travel. And after two or three years of, um, of COVID, where people weren't able to travel and work abroad, uh, many are making the choice to go abroad. Now, we want to keep them here. We want to, them to work safely. We want them to work at the top of their life. We want to create a healthcare system that isn't funneled through hospital emergency departments, but presents work opportunities for nurses elsewhere in community hubs, working with GP practices, completing loops of care out in the community that don't necessarily go through congested emergency departments. Well, it's not going to get better overnight, uh, Dr Henry says. Hardly the answer we wanted to hear. I can't give people the answer they might want to give in terms of uh, uh, achieving an absolutely safe completely safe and fully staffed system overnight. Now, that's uh, Dr. Colm Henry. Let's speak uh, to Dr. Brian Turner, who's a leading economist and lecturer at Cork University Business School. Good morning to you, Brian. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You say that the HSE has created a rationing of care. What do you mean by that? Good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I suppose it, the, the rationing of care is basically something that it's not unusual uh, to Ireland. I mean, it, it, pretty much every health system rations care. But I suppose the degree to which we're rationing care is probably uh, greater than a lot of other health systems, particularly around Europe. So, I mean, in terms of the rationing of care, essentially there are two ways of rationing care. One is through uh, charging for, for payments for, for accessing care. The other is through waiting lists, and it's the, the latter that we have in, in Ireland. So we, we've seen the, the increase in waiting lists over recent years uh, to the point where we're now at, a, at record levels uh, and people are waiting very significant lengths of time to, to access that treatment. So that's, that's essentially the, uh, the, the result of the rationing of care uh, because our capacity uh, isn't sufficient to meet the demand for, for health services. So we ration more than others do. We all ration, but Ireland rationing more than our European counterparts, uh, for example. And you're suggesting uh, that uh, we have the lowest number of public beds uh, in harsh hospitals across the EU. Uh, it's certainly well below the OECD average. So, uh, I mean, if, if you look at the, the last lot of figures we have for 2019, which is pre-pandemic, which probably gives us a, a better sense of the, uh, the, the true picture before uh, everything got a bit uh, fuzzy in the, in the pandemic. Yeah. But at that stage, we had 2.9 hospital beds per thousand population compared with an OECD average of 4.4. So we're quite significantly below the average. Now, the OECD average is coming down because we're making better use of beds. People are being treated more on, on a day case basis than in patient uh, so we don't need as many beds but even still we're, we're significantly below the, the, the OECD average and I mean it's, it's interesting to, to think we actually had more hospital beds in Ireland in 1980 than we do now despite the fact that our population has increased by over a third since then so we, we, we lost a lot of beds in the late 80s the 90s and we've never really got a lot of those back so we need to, to, to increase the capacity in the in the health system quite quite significantly uh, to meet the the demands of an, of a growing and an aging population which we have.
Does it concern you to hear the Chief Clinical Officer express concern about patient safety in the hospitals going into the winter, saying it can't be solved overnight, uh, as we heard there? Uh, and how soon can these problems be solved? It's, it's going to be difficult, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's refreshing to hear his honesty. I mean, I know it, 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 it doesn't bode well, and it's, it's not nice to hear it, but at least he's being honest, saying, look, we have this problem, it's not going to be solved overnight. Uh, I mean, this Laundry Care report, which is the, uh, the, the agreed uh, cross-party plan for the, the, the health system over 10 years, uh, that caused for you know, massive uh, increases in capacity, so a 20% increase in, in hospital beds, 20% increase in consultants, 48% increase in primary care workforce. Now, we're trying to, to, to significantly increase our capacity at a time when globally there's a shortage of uh, health workforce. So um, there was a report published in 2019 suggesting that by 2030, we're going to have an OECD-wide shortage of about 386,000 doctors and about 2.5 million nurses. Uh, and only yesterday I saw a report from the US uh, which said that about 25% of uh, doctors, nurses and um, advanced medical practitioners there are actually thinking of leaving the health system altogether. They're just completely burnt out because the pandemic has, has really drained a lot of, of, uh, of, of health workers. Uh, they're exhausted, they're burnt out, they're, they're kind of wondering, now, should we actually just change career or should we stay uh, in the health system? Mm. And it's in that context that we're trying to, to recruit uh, significant numbers of additional uh, doctors and nurses. Uh, and we've seen how the health service managed to cope despite the strain on hospital services through the pandemic. Uh, but the solution, if you like, was cancelling elective procedures. But that is hardly a solution, is it? It's it's a short-term solution, but it, it creates problems in the longer term. So, I mean, what we're seeing now is a lot of people who delayed care during the pandemic now are seeking care. And in some cases, those people, you know, their illnesses have progressed to the point where they need more intensive treatment. So uh, we're, it's going to take a few years for that, I think, to, to fully wash its way through the system. Uh, but in the meantime, that's going to increase demand even further. And, you know, we're already looking at a, a fairly stretched system. And we also have kind of newer ways of working as well. So with the new infection control measures uh, post-COVID, uh, you know, it, it, the, the capacity is slightly reduced, uh, you know, in, in hospitals anyway, because they're, they're, they're trying to keep people uh, separated a bit more than they, they previously did. So yeah. uh, it, it's almost like a perfect storm in the short term. Uh, and close to a fifth of the population on some sort of waiting list. Uh, how does that compare to other countries? Well, there's a, a, a report comes out every couple of years uh, from the, the European Health Consumer Powerhouse, uh, which ranks health systems across Europe. Now, overall, the, the, the most recent report ranked Ireland at 22nd out of 35 countries. Uh, so we're kind of mid to, mid to low table. But we're ranked dead last in terms of access. And I mean, that, that really is the Achilles heel of the Irish health system. Uh, I mean, once people get into the, the public hospital system, the, the, most people are very happy with the quality of treatment they get. The problem is actually getting in there in the first place. And I mean, the, the, the uh, authors of the report a number of years ago basically stopped using the official waiting time data in Ireland. They basically said, look, this doesn't make any sense. And even if we achieved the, the target, which at the time was nobody waiting longer than 18 months, 
um, even if we achieve that target, we would still have worse waiting times in Europe. That's what the, the authors were saying. Mm. So, I mean, it, it is certainly uh, a bigger problem here than in, in a lot of other countries. Uh, I'm sure you'll appreciate that there's many of our listeners, uh, particularly in uh, the Navin area, uh, uh, close uh, to Our Lady's Hospital in Navin, who will be asking if we're facing into a, a winter where emergency departments uh, could possibly be overwhelmed. Why would you close one of uh, the 26 that there are in the country? Well, I suppose that's more of a, a clinical decision rather than an economic one, I think. Um, so I'll leave that to the clinicians to, to, to discuss. But um, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, we, we need to add capacity right across the system. So, uh, you know, if, if the, the capacity isn't being added uh, in, in Drada, then I think, uh, you know, closing that you know, could potentially cause uh, some problems uh, in terms of overcrowding, no, whether from a clinical point of view, uh, we're better off doing it. Uh, as I'll well, leave that to the clinicians to discuss. Okay, uh, but uh, even if you come up with the perfect plan, it's never easy to implement. Is it? Uh, there's layers of bureaucracy and vested interests, uh, whether that's uh, trade unions or otherwise, uh, who uh, all uh, need to be brought on board to bring about change in the health service. And that seems to be one of the biggest problems that Minister for Health, after Minister for Health, has faced into in this country. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I don't envy the job of any minister for health in Ireland, to be quite honest. Um, I mean, it is a, a huge job of work to, to try and change things, and, it, and things don't happen very easily, and they don't happen very quickly. But I suppose that's why I was encouraged in 2017 when the Slanchica report was published, because it gives us a consistent approach. So irrespective of who happens to be in government uh, over the next 10 years, we should see a fairly consistent approach to uh, change in the health system. And I think that's something that we, we were lacking previously. So previously we could see changes in direction every five years when a new government comes into power. So mm. at least now we, we won't see that. So they, you know, th- there is an agreed approach to, to how to do it. I suppose the, the concern I would have is that you know there were very ambitious targets set in Slaunch Care in terms of the increasing uh, you know physical capacity and also uh, the workforce. Uh, now, since the the Slaunch Care was, report was published, so that was published in 2017, uh, and since then we've seen tender prices uh, increase by nearly 50 percent. So the the cost of providing the physical infrastructure, the hospitals, the primary care centres. Uh, that cost has increased massively now, so I think we need to get a relook at the the costings that were involved in that. And we've also seen, uh, as I said, the, the the shortage internationally of medical workforce. Now, I suppose on on the the flip side of that, and uh, yeah, I, I'm conscious I'm probably mm. sounding very depressing at the moment, <laughs> but I think there are some positives, and one one mm. positive that I would take is uh, what happened with, for the, the Be On Call for Ireland initiative at the start of the pandemic. Mm. There was a huge response to that, which suggests that. You know, if the conditions, if the pain conditions are, are sorted, then there is uh, a lot of goodwill uh, amongst Irish healthcare workers abroad to come back and work in the system. So uh, I think it is possible to, 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 to get the additional capacity that we need, mm. but we just need to, to work on it and make sure that we, we make it an attractive place to work. And it's not just about pay, it's about conditions as well. Mm. That's something that a lot of health workers will talk about, that it's, you know, they're, they're chaotic conditions that they're working in, particularly in, in hospital settings. Now, I suppose... To a certain extent, there's a a slightly chicken and egg scenario there uh, in that until such time as we get more more people into the system, it's it's probably going to be a little bit chaotic. So it's it's trying to to attract people in 
to, to take a little bit of the pressure off the system. Is it a question it of funding, though? Place to work. Is it a question of funding, though? Because there's a massive health budget of over 19 billion, isn't there? Uh, and uh, I mean, you'd imagine that you'd get a lot for your money. But is it a question of the funding or how the funding is utilised? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, there needs to be more funding, but there also needs to be reform in the system. If you try and bring one in without the other, it's not necessarily going to work. Now, in terms of the funding side of things, I mean, yes, we have increased the health budget quite significantly in recent years, but we are playing catch-up for, 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 for kind of underfunding uh, throughout a number of decades. So through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, we were underspending uh, in an international context, whereas now we're kind of back to level, you know, similar levels to, to other countries. But we're still playing catch-up to those other countries who were spending a lot more right throughout the, the 80s and the 90s. And the other issue is that we were we, we benefited uh, quite a lot over recent years from a relatively young population. But now our population is actually ageing more quickly than uh, other countries' populations. Uh, and obviously older people tend to need more care uh, than younger people on average. So, you know, we, we have this ageing population, but we also have a growing population. Because, again, with the, the Sloan Care Report and the, the Associated Health Service Capacity Review in 2018, they were based on projections of population that have pretty much been exceeded already. So uh, the, the uh, CSO released the uh, preliminary census figures from April uh, a couple of months ago. And what they show is that our population in April of this year is almost at the point where, where it was predicted to be in 2026 uh, for the, the health service uh, capacity review. So our population is growing faster than expected and it's ageing faster than internationally. So we need this additional capacity uh, to, to be put in place to meet the demands that are going to be on the health service uh, in the future. OK, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. A pleasure to speak to you too. That's uh, Dr. Brian Turner, leading economist and lecturer at Cork University Business School. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Personal Injuries Assessment Board says that this year there'll be the lowest number of personal injury claims in over 15 years. The average award has been €14,786, which is 38% lower than before judicial guidelines were introduced. Let's speak to Peter Boland, who's the Director of the Alliance for Insurance Reform. Any surprise for you in this report, Peter? No, Michael. Uh, the figures are consistent with what we've been seeing from PIAB uh, since the middle of last year uh, and they're very positive and they prove that the insurance reform campaign is working to the extent that it's bringing the cost of claims down. Now the kicker though is that the insurance industry has constantly maintained that it's the cost of claims that drive the cost of insurance Uh, And we're seeing the impact of these reforms on motor insurance. Uh, So even in the current year, we're seeing a reduction of 10% on private motor policies uh, on top of additional reductions in the last two or three years. But where the real problem is, is on liability insurance. So that's the kind of insurance that's paid by small businesses, by community groups, uh, sports clubs, charities, cultural organisations. And that's actually going up at the moment. And that is nuts because the same reason that motor is going down is Mm. the same reason that liability should be going down. And essentially what's happening is that the insurers on the liability side are taking the government for a ride on this.
Right. Uh, is this the sort of uh, cases that people would have read about uh, during the week where a, a boy, a 13-year-old boy at the time, uh, took part in a sporting facility, a long jump into a sandpit facility, came down on his leg and was awarded €16,324 in damages? Well, look, at insurance is there to cover the people who are injured due to the negligence of others. And if it is a case where somebody was negligent, then fair enough. And and that's why insurance is there. But the problem in Ireland, mm. historically, is that for minor soft tissue injuries, we have handed out multiples of what's handed out elsewhere. And it's policyholders who have been paying the cost of that. Uh, it's a non-affordable luxury and it is damaging our society. So whilst I don't have an insight into the particular case yeah. you, mm-hmm. you mentioned, uh, I would say, look at Insurance is there to cover people who are injured, as I say, due to the negligence of others. As well as the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow traditionally traditionally in Ireland, it has led to a situation where it's very profitable to put through claims uh, where there mightn't be a claim in other countries. Uh, And that has been at at the heart of the problem. But that is being addressed. The level of damage has been handed out is reducing dramatically. Uh, and PIAB, most importantly, are starting to settle more claims again. So the system is working in our favour. Uh, and that is yielding millions in savings. But so far, uh, what we're seeing is that rather than those savings being passed on to consumers, uh, they are boosting the profits of insurers. Okay, and, and you'd prefer to see claims dealt with by PIAB rather than the courts? Absolutely. Like It's well established at this stage, and we've talked about this before, that if a claim is settled at PIAB, uh, the plaintiff gets the same amount of money as they would if they went on to litigation. Uh, but the real difference is that if the plaintiff goes on to litigation, it takes over two years longer. They don't get any more money, but the legal fees skyrocket. So whereas the average legal fees for a personal injury claim at Piaba are around the €700 euro mark, mm. uh, they go up to about €15,500 the day it goes into the litigation process. So there's only one set of beneficiaries in a situation like that, uh, and that is the legal profession. But... They've been aided and embedded on this uh, by insurers because insurers uh, seem to be quite happy to settle on cases even where they're manifestly unjust because they're entitled then to pass the cost on to policyholders. So essentially, if you're following the money on this, uh, everybody's making a few bob and the cost gets passed on to policyholders. But the big worry now is that all of the costs are falling. They're falling dramatically. It's very seldom you see reductions of, uh, to the, the sum of 30 or 40%. Uh, and yet, liability premiums are going up. And all of that difference is being pocketed by insurers. Now, uh, as I've said already, we think they're taking the government for a ride on this because the government have worked in earnest for a number of years now in getting uh, all of these reforms through with massive support from the opposition as well, because everybody knows that this needs to be done. Um, But 
uh, it is not yielding results. So what we're seeing is the likes of community centres still facing unaffordable insurance premiums at a time when we know that those premiums should be coming down. Okay, Uh, and... If you take a case and it's unsuccessful, uh, let's say in the courts, can you go to PIAB or if you take a case to PIAB and it's unsuccessful, can you uh, decide then to take it uh, through the courts? So the process is fairly structured at this stage. Um, If you're taking a personal injury claim, uh, occasionally it will be settled by the insurer before it ever gets to PIAB. Uh, If it's not settled directly by the insurer, then it must automatically automatically go into PIAB. Uh, and then PIAB will make an assessment. Uh, they are not entitled to judge on the liability in the case. They can only uh, make an assessment of the damages that might be due. And then uh, either side, both the plaintiff or the respondent, uh, are entitled to either accept or reject the PIAB assessment. And if it's rejected by either party, it goes on into litigation, mm-hmm. uh, which, like I say, can take uh, on average over two years. Uh, and then very occasionally, and it is very occasionally, cases actually get to court. So that's the process, and it can be settled at any place along that route. Um, over 70% of claims are settled in litigation, which is that grey area in between PIAB uh, and the courts. Mm. And that's our major problem is okay. that in there, uh, the insurers and the plaintiff solicitors do a deal like I say, everybody yeah. gets paid uh, and the policyholder pays. The, so, the, so, so if Peter Bolland was to take a, a case against Michael Reid uh, and Payab said, I'm sorry, Peter, you really don't have a, a case here uh, and you rejected that finding uh, and decided to go on uh, down the legal road, uh, it, it's likely that despite it having been looked at and decided that you don't have a case that the insurance company would settle with you. Is that right? No, well, PIAB aren't entitled to say that. Uh, they they have no uh, right to judge whether I have a case or not. So what will happen is if I put the claim in and it goes into PIAB, PIAB will say, OK, well, uh, we're taking it on face value and you're entitled to X. Yeah. Uh, so that's the only decision they can make is how much I'm entitled to. Mm. Um, and then uh, I have a couple of choices and typically what our members find is that the only advice I'm getting is from my solicitor. And my solicitor is saying, look, at, reject that yeah. and we go on to the courts and we'll get you more. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, on average, if I reject it and go on to the mm. courts, I'm not getting more. But my solicitor is getting an average of about 15,000 euros. Right. The, the, the payment will be more. The settlement will be more. But it's the solicitor who will uh, take the lion's share. The, the settlement, the money that I get yeah. won't change at all, really, okay. in any meaningful way. Uh, but the solicitor's quids up on the deal. OK, well, that's good news for the solicitor, obviously. Uh, but uh, bad news then for those of us who have nothing to do with any of this, but need to have insurance, whether it's for our, our cars or for our businesses or whatever the case may be. Well, and the, the results of all of this are plain and simple to see in that in Ireland, we cannot do the stuff that is taken for granted elsewhere. So if it's adventure sports or kids play areas mm. or community playgrounds or community centres, what we're seeing constantly now is that either projects are going ahead, aren't going ahead because of the fear of the cost of insurance uh, or the fear of trustees being sued. Uh, or we're seeing situations where services, particularly voluntary services into the community, are wound down because they're just not commercially feasible anymore. Mm. 
Right. Um, what about tripping on a footpath? Well, claim goes into the local authority. Yeah. Local authority um, will do whatever deal they deem to be necessary. Why? Uh, and the uh, cost I, gets paid on to I the mean, taxpayer. Like, is it necessary to do a deal? Uh, I mean, surely, uh, if you tripped on the footpath, uh, the first question is, were you watching where you were going? Precisely. And this is one of the additional reforms that's coming through at the moment. Um, so Minister McEntee has undertaken to reform the duty of care uh, which is applicable to occupiers as uh, typically local authorities or private mm. enterprises or community groups are known. And uh, so there will be much more of an onus under the new legislation uh, for an injured party to, to be able to show that they were looking after their own, mm. uh, their, own, their own health. And that is absolutely critical because, again, under the current legislation, what we find is that typically an occupier, as they're known in law, uh, will have an absolute duty of care by the time the claim gets to court. Mm. And that regardless of the circumstances, uh, you'll see claims coming through and you're going, how the heck did that ever get to court? I've seen recent CCTV footage of uh, somebody walking backwards down the stairs in a shop as they talk to their children, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. falling over as uh, <laughs> unsurprisingly yeah. and now taking a claim. Yeah. And uh, so the, the duty of care legislation has facilitated that sort of a, a culture where people feel entitled to make a claim yeah. despite the circumstances. That has now been looked at as well. Like, like these stickers that you see in some countries about if you spill hot tea on yourself it's going to burn you because it's hot <laughs> and uh, to try and uh, reduce uh, the liability. Uh, but I mean surely uh, if you jump on a tam- trampoline you do so at your own risk and that should be clear to everybody or if you're jumping into a sandpit or running in a playground or indeed uh, in a play centre that you do so at your own risk or your parents' risk and if you do it without the supervision of others uh, well then you shouldn't have been doing it and they can't be held uh, accountable for it. Well, one of the members of the Alliance for Insurance Reform is, is Ireland's adventure tourism industry. And they have regular meetings with their European counterparts. And they were telling me about the first time they met their European counterparts and they told them about the situation as it stands in Ireland. And the other European countries represented at that meeting just laughed at them because they could not believe that insurance was the issue that it is in Ireland. This doesn't happen anywhere else in Europe. Uh, and people can get about their business uh, and entertain other people and provide tourism offerings uh, without the fear of the premium coming in the door and without fear of being sued in the way that we are sued here in Ireland. Uh, so a lot of that is driven by the duty of care legislation mm. and the government and Minister McEntee have committed to getting this over the line okay. uh, by the end of the year. And that would be another big uh, addition to the insurance reform agenda. But in the meantime... It's already yielding results, but they're not being passed on by insurers, Michael, and that's at the heart mm. of uh, why we're so annoyed about the PIAD figures. Okay, one thing to be a, a laughing stock, one thing to say it's time to get serious, but a, a completely other thing to uh, achieve uh, a change in what we're paying through our, our premiums. Hopefully, that will be the result of uh, reports like this and uh, the pressure that it, it brings to bear on government. Peter, we leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed for joining us as always. Thank you, Michael. Peter Boland, the director of the Alliance for Insurance Reform. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. No election will take place in December or ahead of the festive season in Northern Ireland. Let's speak to local Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Muraku. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. It was a brief statement, but a very clear statement from the Northern Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris. What do you make of it? Nothing clear about it. It's continued dithering. You know, we've obviously had the fact that the DUP have haven't been given succour by um, Tory party uh, governments in the last while and um, have basically not allowed an institution and an executive to be set up so that they can rewrite a protocol that the executive and the institutions have no part to play. That's a deal between the British government uh, and the European Commission and the European Union. Um, we actually, at this stage, we had, a, we had Chris Heaton-Harris saying there's going to be an election and he didn't call mm. it this. Now he's saying we're not going to have it before and mm. um, d- d- before Christmas. Yeah, Steve um, Baker saying on Wednesday that there'll be an election. Uh, but the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, welcomed this statement on this programme uh, this morning, saying it gives everybody a chance to step back and perhaps there's reason to have hope now. Uh, and maybe, uh, not quoting the Minister now, uh, but maybe the British government has had a change of heart and is about to do a deal. Well, we'd only be too delighted if the British government could show that they're going to do a deal with the European Union. That obviously takes that off the agenda. Then we'll see the colour of the DUP's money. Um, Once they're not provided with any succour, there's a certain belief out there that this is a facilitation um, of the DUP. Now, there's nobody on an individual basis wants an election, particularly a run into into Christmas. Um, But like, we still have to wait next week on what Chris Heaton-Harris is going to say uh, on what the next his next steps are and what we want to see is what are the next steps in relation to laying it out straight to the DUP on what's on offer and then how we can actually get the institutions off back and running and even in the short term how we can get that £400 uh, cost of living energy payment mm. to people. Do the institutions the have to get uh, back up and running? Is that a red line? If the DUP won't take seats in Stormont what then? Well, look, see, at this stage, it's the, the British government, as we all know, we know there's meant to be an election at any time, what is it, up to 12 weeks after the 28th of October, but like, the British government are fairly able to call the shots to, in relation to this. We need to ensure that the Irish government are calling it as it is, because, look, the, the, mm. the party leaderships met with Chris Heaton-Harris, got no indication of what was going to happen, and then we have this. So we will see what he's going to do next week, but let's be clear. First and foremost, people want the institutions back up and running. We need a deal on the protocol. No problem with streamlining, but let's get on with real politics. And let's be clear, real politics is going to be difficult for the DUP. If there isn't an election within the 12 weeks, it's a a breach of British legislation. Uh, It's also a a breach of uh, the Good Friday Agreement, isn't it? Yeah, well, see, that's it. Now, some of these things have obviously been changed over a period of time. Um, in, in relation to that. But look, all we want is... But the most fundamental thing step. to the Good Friday Agreement is power sharing, isn't it? No, no, it's power sharing, it's the haunt, it's, it's all of yeah. that. Mm. And, and we are not... This is not a time to be moving away from, um, from the Good Friday Agreement. We are, we are nearly 25 years on. And there has been much achieved, but not as much as there should have been. What we need to have is a bit mm. of real politic, and we need to put up to the DUP that they need to join the rest of us in relation to politics that delivers for people, because that's what it's yeah. about. No now, assembly, no power sharing, no Good Friday Agreement uh, in real life. 
that's it. But like here, let's be clear. The DUP are like everybody else. If they see the ground and see they see they see what makes sense from their party's point of view, from their people's point of view, it just they believed for a period that they were given an element of leeway that they were by a British government. If that leeway is being removed and a British government is going to set out a way and means to get uh, the institutions back up and running, we will be in a better place. Let's hope that that is the case. <laughs> That's what everybody will be hoping for, I think. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning, Sinn Féin TD, for Loud and East Mead, Rory O'Muraku. That's our programme for today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. Maggie McGuire researched. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.